And uh, I'm going to tell you, did you know that in spite of what we're told, we're kind of given the impression, if not outright told this, as Christians, we are supposed to love everybody. Now, we don't dispute that, do we? But there's the implication that we're supposed to love everybody the same. And I'm just going to say, I don't even think that's possible. And I don't think that that is even a biblical command. Certainly, you should love your children in a way that is deeper than the love that you have for someone else's children. Certainly, you should love your spouse in a different way than you should love someone else's spouse. Right? That causes all kinds of problems when that happens. And sometimes I think we get to feeling that because we are supposed to be so tolerant and accepting of everybody, verses like we're going to look at this morning cause us to kind of stop and pay attention because did you know that the Apostle Paul in the book of Titus tells us that there are some people you are supposed to, and he uses these words, avoid and reject. Now let that sink in. Because that almost, for our culture, doesn't even sound like a biblical or godly concept, does it? And yet that's exactly what we're told in here. There are some people that you can't deal with, that you can't handle, and some people you're not really supposed to handle. There are some people that the enemy will put into your life, and you're going to spend all of your time, all of your energy, all of your effort ministering to them, and it's not going to change them one iota. In fact, what you're going to find out is, while you were busy focusing time and energy, maybe even money, on a certain person that didn't change, you missed 10 other opportunities where you could have been involved in their life with people whose lives would have been helped and would have changed. And that's just something that is real and honest and something that we need to think about. There are people that will suck the life out of you for no good reason at all other than as a tool of the enemy to distract you from people and ministries where you could be effective. I want to tell you, as a pastor, that's hard, hard to know the difference. Because there are times when you might tell somebody, I think I've done all I can do for you. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel loving. It doesn't feel kind. And yet it's the absolute truth. And there are some people that desperately need you but they can't get your attention because you're focused over here on something that is going to end up being frustrating, disappointing, and empty. And you're going to look back and say, why did I waste my time on somebody like that? And that's not a new phenomenon. That's something that even the Apostle Paul had to deal with. And so he tells Titus in uh, Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 9... But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are, note this word, unprofitable, and this word, useless. Well, then it goes further than that. Verse 10, reject, it's a strong word, isn't it? Reject a divisive man after the first and second 
admonition or, or warning, we might say. 11, knowing that such a person is, well, this is not politically correct, is it? Warped and sinning, being self-condemned. That is not really the message that a lot of churches would like to um, put out there. We want to put out the idea that we're loving, that we're tolerant, that everyone's welcome, that there's... And yet the Bible talks about such a thing as church discipline where people are put out of the fellowship. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gave us the four steps. Well, Jesus is the one who is the builder of the church. Not you, not me, it's Jesus. He said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And one of the ways he builds his church is by disciplining his church, church discipline. And that is in line with what Paul said because in the days of Paul, there were churches he would establish and then he would move on somewhere else. And in this case, he's writing to his protege Titus and Titus is the pastor of these churches in Crete. And there were people there that would love to distract the believers away from the preeminence of Jesus Christ that we talked about in Sunday school away from the truth of grace and the gospel, and they want to get involved in the law and in disputes and in opinionizing and all of these things. People in the Middle Ages used to do this. Theologians would get together and debate how many angels would fit on the head of a pen. Stupid stuff, right? And sometimes you get people getting together to talk about things that nobody knows the answer to, that the Bible doesn't even address. But boy, they want to get ramped up on it because they've had a dream, they've had a vision, they read a book, they were thinking, and they started thinking beyond what God has revealed. You might want to write down the reference of Deuteronomy 29, 29. A lot of you know that, but just in case you don't. And it basically says that there are secret things that belong only to the Lord. In other words, while you're on this earth, you're never going to figure them out. And all your figuring and all of your debating and all of your opining on it is going to lead you astray because you're going beyond the scope of the Bible. The Bible is the final revelation of God, and we dare not ignore anything that it says, but listen carefully, we also don't want to go beyond what it reveals to us. Because in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it also tells us that there are things, these secret things, that God has revealed to us. And he reveals it through his word, the Bible. And we don't want to go beyond that. That's what gets us into trouble. But there were people that were coming into Crete, and they wanted to debate different things. Genealogies. I'm closer to the Lord than you are. I am a descendant of... Isaiah, maybe, they might say. I'm a descendant of King Solomon, maybe they would say. And uh, they would say, my family has a closer walk. We have special covenants with you. And they would dispute over those kind of things. You're not Jewish enough. Or they might tell, since it was Crete, well, you can't really know God until you become a Jew. You've got to go through the ritual of circumcision. You've got to keep the feast. 
you've got to adhere to a special diet, all of those kind of things, which would take away from Jesus. It was actually saying, well, Jesus did his part, but the real power is in this and this and this. And Paul would contend against that and fight against that in almost every letter, every epistle that he would write because all of those things take away from Jesus. For example, if I were to tell you today that you've got to believe that Jesus is the God-man born of a virgin who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross as the sinless sacrifice, rose from the dead on the third day, and that he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, I think probably everybody in here would respond to that by saying, and amen, right? And I said, and the way that you are saved is that you have to trust him as Savior and Lord, you would say amen to that, would you not? And if I added one little thing, and in order to complete that, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Now we have a problem, don't we? Why do we have a problem? Because the Bible says, back we read this in Titus, that he saved us according to his mercy, not by any righteous deeds that we have done. The Bible says you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and the next three words, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Paul is telling us here, these people who want to boast in what they do, and they want to manipulate you, and they want to control you outside of the Scripture, and where the Scripture does not speak, well, then Paul would say, we have a problem. Because you see, if I were to say, Jesus, the God-man who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, and he went back to heaven, if you'll trust him and be baptized then you'll be saved. You know what I just did? I took the work of Christ and compared it to being dunked in a pool of water and I made the dunking of your body in a pool of water greater than the work of Jesus Christ. You see that? It became the important thing. Jesus did everything he did, but if you don't do this little ritual, then you really won't be saved. So which is the big deal? And it takes away from the preeminence of Christ. And Paul would say, don't let anyone ever do that. Because there's any number of groups that will tell you how to be saved. And they always boil down to, yeah, Jesus, some, but works are really the big deal. There are churches, as you can find here in Oklahoma City, that teach that if you do not speak in tongues, you've never been saved. That is the evidence of salvation. And that is dead wrong. Paul himself said, not all speak in tongues. You can find people that will say, like I just did, that you have to trust and then you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's dead wrong. Dead wrong. And you can find other people that talk about being saved by good works or charitable deeds or all kinds of things like that. And the Bible makes it clear good works flow from salvation, but good works never result in salvation. In fact, they tend to go the other way. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says that if you're trusting in your works, you're going to boast about those works. That makes me think about a story Jesus told about a Pharisee who had all of the good works, but he didn't have salvation. Praying in the temple next to a tax collector who had none of the good works, but he walked out of there redeemed. Remember that story? 
I thank thee, Lord, that I am not as other men are, as this tax collector. And then he starts listing all the things that he does. The tax collector wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven, but said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, how many churches and how, in how many situations do you think there are many more Pharisees than there are tax collectors in our churches? How many people really see themselves as sinners deserving of and under the wrath of God who cry out for mercy to God based upon Jesus Christ as to those who just sort of join the club and become a part of the group and acknowledge the Lord and they kind of tip their hat to the Lord, so to speak, and then they really base their salvation upon themselves and then... Because they are so smart and so wise and so godly and so righteous, they start working on other people and drawing them away from the gospel. How could that be true? How could that be possible? How can one man, they might say, die for the sins of someone else? I can't die for anyone else's sins. How could Jesus die for my sins and your sins and the sins of you know, all of the people who are going to put their trust in him until he returns. And they would say, that doesn't make any sense. How could God be, and I heard one man say this verbatim, how could God be such a child abuser as to punish his own son for the sake of other people? You ever heard anything like that? I heard a guy say on the radio... I reject the notion that you are saved only by faith. It's not fair that a person like Adolf Hitler could live and do what he did and just before he dies ask the Lord to save him and he could go to heaven and someone like me who has lived a moral life and given millions of dollars to charity be rejected because I don't trust in Christ like he did. You see, a lot of the world does not think that your story and your gospel of good news is all that good. I think, what are you saying? That I'm a sinner? That I'm not worthy? That God wouldn't accept me? And so they go to work to try to change us and to change our story and to change what we do and what we think and what we believe. That's why we've always got to be on guard about these kind of things. And that was happening at Crete. People coming in and trying to infuse or inject legalism into the gospel of Jesus Christ. So notice here that Paul said, first of all, that there's something that we must avoid. Some things we must avoid. And the way that he put them are, avoid foolish disputes. It's not that every dispute is wrong. Sometimes in the book of Acts, they had disputes. They had debates. They had things that they needed to settle. But they weren't foolish things. They weren't stupid things. They weren't meaningless things. They weren't fleshly things. They weren't worldly things. They weren't man-exalting type of things. They had to get doctrine straight. They had to get what the Bible taught. They had to get it straight. They had to get it worked out. They had to get it thought through. And all of that would happen. That can be profitable. That's why Solomon said, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And when you're sharpening iron with iron, it can get a little hot. It can get a little edgy. 
it can get a little uncomfortable sometimes. And that even happened when you read in the uh, things of the New Testament church. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Paul to take the apostle Peter. Now we're talking about Peter who saw the resurrection. Peter who walked on water. Peter, all of those kind of things. And remember Paul said, I rebuked Peter to the face. You think that didn't cause a little bit of uncomfortableness, a little bit of heat? You think maybe Peter got a little defensive over that? You think maybe even people watching it were saying, well, I don't think Paul should have done that. And uh, other people were saying, well, he's sure he should have done that. You know what Peter has done? And you can read about that sometime and just imagine uh, what all must have happened. And there were times when Paul would write letters calling out people in the church by name. Euodius and Syntyche, for example, and others that he would say uh, uh, their name and sometimes even their sin. But that was not a foolish thing. He was doing that to be helpful, to help the church and also to help those people come to the realization of what they were doing and how destructive it was. Now Paul is telling us here, avoid foolish disputes. A foolish dispute is one that, well, first of all, just doesn't matter. Who cares? What does it change about anything that we already know? It's a distraction. It's a foolish. It's a time waster. And so many times we get into conversations that all they are are time wasters. They don't edify anybody. They don't help anybody. They don't teach anybody. They don't correct anybody. None of that happens. It just causes two people to get hot and angry and everybody else around them to be uncomfortable. Avoid anything that is a foolish dispute. And then he said genealogies. I'm closer to the Lord because of my heritage that would especially be the Jewish uh, faction there. He talks about those who are contentious. I don't know if you've lived long enough to notice. Some people are just not happy unless they're in a fight. Unless they're in an argument. And they can suck you in and draw you into that. Because they're always going to be negative. They're always going to be uh, a person who disputes something. That's just the way they live. In fact, we're going to find out later on it's their nature. And uh, then he says, and strivings about the law. For they are, and, and here's the key, they're unprofitable and they're useless. So if you're engaged in talk and arguments and all of that, that end up being like, who cares? And what does it matter? And why did God not reveal that to us? Then you probably ought to stop it and put your heart and your mind and your thoughts into the things that he has revealed. I think a lot of people are, uh, need to be thinking like Mark Twain did. Mark Twain made a statement, or is reported to, that it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the things that I do understand. And I think a lot of times with us, if we would just do what we know to do, what we know is right, and just focus on that, you'll get the other things. They either don't matter and you won't worry about them, or you'll find them later on as they're revealed to you by God through His Word. In the meantime, you're just wasting your time. You're not growing. You're not helping other people to grow. In fact, let's put it this way. You are spinning your wheels spiritually. No wonder you're not winning any battles. No wonder you're not overcoming sin. No wonder you're not having a positive influence on other people because you're getting bogged down in these things that the Bible says we are to avoid. And notice that he didn't just say these things. 
he is talking about just the concept of these things. Whether it be about football, whether it be about Ford or Chevy, whether it's going to be about anything else that goes on, if it's an unprofitable thing, the Bible says, for the glory of God, avoid it. This is talk about things that keep us from doing good works. A lot of people are all talk and they're no action. All talk and no action. And Paul said, get busy doing the things that I've told you to do to be rich in good works and quit all this unprofitable talk. And that's the key, unprofitable and useless. A friend of mine wrote that there, are plenty, uh, there is plenty to talk about and to discuss. We have plenty of vital issues to discuss and at times to debate that are profitable. Here's a few. We could talk about, um, number one, uh, whatever is central to biblical revelation. Uh, that's a good thing to talk about. We don't always agree. We don't always see eye to eye on things. But at the same time, we don't get into an empty and meaningless dispute. It causes us to study harder and to think more deeply when we're exposed to those things. Number two, whatever regards the honor and the glory of God. A good thing to talk about. Number three, whatever regards the person and work of Christ as declared in the gospel. Good things to talk about. May I ask you a question? How much talking have you done this morning? And number two, as a follow-up, how much of it centered on Jesus? It's possible to even come to church and not talk about Jesus much and not talk about the gospel much. So well, that's what the Sunday school teacher and the preachers are for. Well, I mean, they certainly ought to be, but that's not all that ought to be going on. What do we talk about regarding the whatever regards, uh, fourthly, the biblical revelation concerning man, sin, salvation, and judgment? Those are worthy topics. And number five, whatever regards the nature and purpose of the church, the body of Christ. Are we being the church? Are we doing the work of the church? Am I helping or hindering the spread of the gospel? Am I actively involved in what the church is all about? Those are all great things to talk about. But notice that Paul would say, instead of those things that will help us, correct us, teach us, instruct us, nurture us, feed us, and propel us on... We talk about the things that are going to pull us down, mire us down, things that the Bible doesn't address, things that break up relationships, things that hurt people, things that stumble people. And the bottom line is, it is the enemy sowing seeds of confusion in people's lives because God is not the author of confusion. So that's one thing. We need to have this mindset that we're going to avoid these kind of things. We're not going to get into these kind of things with people, especially in the church, because all they do is cause trouble and hurt and division and pain, and they keep us from doing what we're supposed to do. But that brings me to number two, which is a really, really more uncomfortable situation. Paul says, not only are there things, things to avoid... But there are people to reject. Let that just sink in. People to reject. People to reject. And then look at the verses. Am I right? Well, all I know to do is just read it. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Reject. 
This is talk that fails to unify and edify fellow believers, and it actually twists the gospel, turns us away from the gospel, and some people are hindering you from maturing and gaining ground spiritually because all you think about is how to out-argue them. All you think about is how you can get them. All you think about is how to answer the foolish things that they say. I'm going to win this next foolish dispute is what you're actually saying. And what Paul is saying here is you need to reject them. They're not people that you need to be around. They're not people that you need to be fellowshipping, quote unquote, with. They're not people that you need to be sucked into this and drawn into this because we're going to see that these are not people of God. So you're not growing and you're not gaining any ground and you're wasting your time. And Paul said, in a loving way, warn them, admonish them once. But you know, these kind of people don't like to be warned. They don't like to be challenged. They don't like to be uh, disputed. They're trying to manipulate. They're trying to control. They're trying to gain power. They're trying to move you in the direction they want you to go. And they are not the Holy Spirit, by the way. You've got to be careful about that. And so he says you warn them. That's what admonishment is. Once. And then you do it twice. And if they're not listening to a loving, biblical, godly warning about things, there's a reason why they're not listening. And after that second time, it says that you are to reject them. Now, it's interesting. If you have a King James Version, it calls them a heretic. Uh, the Greek word does have that word heretic in it. But in the first century, the word meant merely somebody who was divisive, somebody who caused splits and fractures and fragments. It's a, a picture of what was going on in the Corinthian church. See, the Corinthian church had these groups of people that would gather and they would talk about their pet little uh, ideas and opinions of things. And then they would find people who agreed with them. And so they said, I am of Paul and I am of Peter and I am of Apollos. And they all had their gurus. Why? Because they had been doing this foolish disputing that caused them to divide and they started choosing uh, their leaders. And you notice there that Christ really wasn't the head of any of that, even the ones who said, we're of Christ. There was an arrogance even in that that divided the church. And the church was not a body moving together in unity. It was a collection of body parts. The arms set over here, the noses set over here, and the brains set over here. That made you feel good, didn't it? And uh, other groups set like that. And the people who love brother so-and-so get together. And the people who love this brother get together. And they talk about them. And they make gods out of people who are so supposed to be servants of the Lord. And it divides and fragments the church. And you wonder why nothing really happens or goes on. It's because Christ is not preeminent. And so the Bible says that when you get somebody like that, somebody that would have the audacity to start talking to you about things they don't like in the church when you can't solve that problem? You see, if you're not talking to people who can solve the problem, you're nothing but a gossip and a slanderer. Now, if you've got questions or problems and you talk to someone who can solve that problem, that's a solution maker. That's a good thing. Those are the ways that we ought to talk. But these kind of people don't do that. They divide 
and they conquer and they destroy because their agenda is not a godly agenda no matter what they say their agenda is of the devil and it is to attack the church to divide the church to conquer the church and to get people so distracted from what they really ought to be talking about and what they really ought to be doing remember Paul told this church they ought to be rich in good works these are do-nothing believers they get together in their small groups and they talk about things they ought not talk about and never get around to doing the things that they ought to do and this is a strategy that has been used for about 2,000 years. We're vulnerable to it. The churches in Crete were vulnerable to it. And it's the kind of thing that just results in problems and it never helps. It's one thing to get together and talk about those helpful topics and people to become more like Jesus and loving Jesus more and loving people more and all of that. It's another thing to be drawn away and it's another thing to get arrogant thinking you're the only one that knows the truth. You're the only one dealing with the issues. You're the only one who really thinks deeply and you begin to look down upon other people and then you start thinking that maybe you've got like Ford a better idea. And some people hinder you from maturing and gaining ground spiritually. And the Bible says, reject them. But don't just reject them because you don't like them. Don't just reject them because they don't fit in. Reject them after you have lovingly given them about two warnings. And sometimes people will talk about someone who is doing this, but they never talk to that person and they never actually warn that person about what they're doing and how wrong it is. Well, Paul says get actively involved and uh, don't just tattle on them. Actually stand up to them because they are ruining and they are destroying the church. And by the way, when you read this in the Greek, it is an imperative, which means it is a command. These divisive people, these people that go where the Bible does not go and they detract from the gospel and they come from pride which is where the devil comes from and they seek to control the church they seek to control others and it usually is just a naked ruthless grasp for power you ever known anybody like that you ever seen anybody like that has it ever happened in a church before has it ever happened in our church yeah and those are the kind of things that Paul is dealing with because these are the things that happen when you live in a fallen, cursed world with depraved people. And so he tells us what we are supposed to do and how we are supposed to handle it. So the question would be, before we move on to point number three, are you really a Bible believer? Do you really believe this is the revelation of God? Or are you already disputing with God over these verses? Are you already going, well, I don't think that's the best way to handle it? Then you, my friend, are not a Bible-believing Christian. This is the Word of God. This is what the Holy Spirit said through the Apostle Paul, written to Titus, preserved in the Word of God, because this is an eternal and timeless truth, both situations. There are people who will cause division and take us away from the gospel and tie us up in all kinds of wranglings and disputings and all of that kind of thing that are just useless to keep us from doing what Jesus commanded us to do. And there are people who will listen to them. 
Don't be a person who listens to those, but when they do that, give them two warnings and then cut them out of your life until they repent. Which brings us to number three. There's some things you must know about certain types of people. The Bible says in verse 11, knowing that such, these people he's been dealing with, that such a person is, well, here's how he describes them. They're misguided, and they just need you to be involved in their life and show them love. Is that what it says? That maybe if you would just spend another year with them, that their life would change? Is that what it says? It says here that they are warped. Let that sink in. They are sinning. Let that sink in. They're just not well-meaning, misguided people. They have a purpose in what they do, and it's not the purpose of heaven. It's the purpose of hell. And look at this, being self-condemned. The Bible says that there are going to be people, Matthew chapter 7, who stand before the Lord Jesus, and they call Him Lord. They've done many mighty works, they say, right? We cast out demons, we prophesied in your name, we've done many miracles. And Jesus is going to say to that person, anybody know the first three words? Depart from me. Isn't that chilling? And he says, for I never knew you. Now the word for know there doesn't mean that Jesus is going now. Uh, uh, Gabriel, who was that? Can't remember his name. You ever do that? Who was that person's name? Oh, good night. I can't think of it. That's not what he means. It's not that God is forgetful. The Bible uses the word know in several different ways. For example, Mary was a virgin when Christ was conceived. And the Bible says that Joseph did not know her until after the child was born. So all of a sudden Jesus is born and Joseph goes, Oh! Oh! Mary! Is that what it means? Now you know what it means. And Adam knew Eve, and she bore him a son. It's talking about that intimate, intimate knowledge. When Jesus says, I never knew you, he's not saying, I don't know who you are. He's saying, I never had a personal and intimate relationship with you. You were doing your works. You were performing your miracles. But we didn't have a relationship. Boy, there are a lot of people who are like that. A lot of people who know their church constitution forward and backward and will use it to hit people over the head and cause trouble in the church. There are people who have some pet doctrines and they may not even be wrong about those doctrines. They just take them out of balance and they use them as a sledgehammer to hit other people and to control and to manipulate other people. They're divisive people. And the Bible says that their problem is not, oh, they just need a class. Uh, they just need somebody to instruct them or something. Not these kind of people. These kind of people are warped, they are sinning, and they are self-condemned. This is more than just a disagreement. This is not something that is an occasional thing, because we all have that. Even husbands and wives don't get along, on, don't see eye to eye on everything. This is the way they are bent. Everywhere they go, they're troublemakers. 
Everywhere they go, they are dividing people. Everywhere they go, it seems like the fruit of their quote-unquote ministry is useless, wrangling, unprofitable things that take you away from the gospel, away from the Bible, away from the truth, away from evangelism, <clears throat> away from the good works that Paul talks about because you don't have time to do them. And your spirit is so tangled up, you're angry all the time, and you're kind of in a knot, and you're trying to outdo them, you're trying to put them in their place. And Paul is just simply saying, hey, give it two tries, and if it's not heading in the right direction, then you need to get out of that because that is a person who will not listen, who is devoid of truth, and they are warped and they are sinning and they are self-condemned. They're not listening to you because they think that they are superior to you. And why would they listen to you? You are an ignorant underling who has nothing to say to them. Well, that's kind of casting your pearl before swine, as Jesus would say. That's giving what is holy to the dogs. You don't have time for that, folks. You don't have time for that. And they don't respond to loving warnings because they are people who are self-condemned. This is talk that speaks where the Bible is silent. And let me just say this. Wherever the Bible is silent, you should be silent as well. This is talk that tries to change the unchangeable. And there are some things and some people that you have to understand. Your talk and your time and your interest is not going to change them unless the Lord does a work in their life. But these are people where the Lord is not working in their life. Be careful. This is talk that reveals a person who is not right with God. No matter how they may name the name of Jesus or quote Bible verses or twist them around, they're not right with God because they haven't trusted Him as Lord and Savior. And some people appear to walk with God until you consider what they talk about and whom they talk about and, and what they do with what they talk about. Then they, well, by their fruits you shall know them. And there's no virtue in sitting and discussing deep theological questions when the simple tasks of the Christian life are waiting to be done. Such discussion can be nothing more than an, listen to this, evasion of Christian duties. And there are tons of people who want to do that. Instead of witnessing to the loss, let's just sit around and talk and argue and dispute. Instead of going and doing something about something and doing something for someone, let's just sit and talk. Let's talk about how bad Congress is. Let's talk about how evil abortion is, but not do a thing about either one of those. Some people talk about it and they never even bother to go and vote. Well, something's wrong with that. Some people will talk about abortion, but they never try to do anything to try to stop it. They just want to talk about it. And some people want to talk about everything that they don't like and what they would do if they were in charge or how things ought to be, and it never turns into anything profitable. Let's make a, I guess, a pact this morning that for you and for me, we're going to be the kind of people that, first of all, our speech is going to edify, not tear down. And secondly, where problems exist, and they do, we're going to be a part of the solution, not part of making the problem worse. That number three, we're not going to sit around and talk so much that we just spin our wheels and never get about to doing what we're supposed to do. And number four, that when the enemy sends someone in that is going to derail us from that, 
that we're going to try to evangelize them because if they get saved, it solves the issue. And if not, then we're going to try to understand what Paul is saying and what Jesus said even in Matthew chapter 18. You just can't always get along with and tolerate everyone, can you? It's just a fact of life. And so Paul is dealing with all of this, not out of anger, not out of hatred, but he's doing this because he is zealous for Jesus and zealous for the church and zealous for the truth and the mission of the church. And I think to sum it all up, he's saying, don't let anything or anyone distract the church from doing what Jesus commanded the church to do. Have we done that? Yeah, I think so. Are we guilty? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think this is why Paul had to warn a church not to get involved in it because it's natural to do this. Well, we've got to lay that aside, die to self, and as the Spirit of God is living and working through us, what happens? We start doing the things instead of just talking. And we start unifying around the gospel instead of dividing around the petty issues. I mean, couldn't this be like the church that I know of who uh, they decided to move the offering from after the third hymn to the end of the service and people left the church over it? It's split? I mean, this is the kind of thing that we're talking about here. We've heard and joked about churches that have a business meeting and they split and get divided over what color the carpet is going to be? Jesus told us to go in all the world and preach the gospel and we can't even get it across the street because we're divided over the carpet. Put that in perspective and think about this. What does it take to get us... What does it take to get you off track of what you already know God wants you to do. And then think about this. How patient our Lord is with all of us. And I include myself in that. Can I get an amen on that? Now let's not just take advantage of that. Let's do something with it. To be rich in good works. Both in the church and outside of the church. There's always more that can be done for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. Let's get off of what is hindering us and on to what we know that we ought to do for the glory of God. It's been long enough. Let's don't be stagnant. Let's get busy and let's do what God has called us to do. That's why He sent His Son to die on a cross to pay for our sins. That's why the Holy Spirit drew you to Him. That's why His blood cleansed you of your sin. That's why His Spirit came to indwell you. That's why He put you in a body. All of that is, not, is certainly to save you, but it is also so that you might be rich in good works and following Him with undistracted, undistracted devotion. Boy, that's a goal I haven't reached yet, and that's a goal you haven't reached yet, but it's a worthy, worthy, worthy goal. Because our Lord gave his all for us. How dare we not give our all for him? So let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. And I want you just to think. Think about this. How many times has 
the enemy brought someone in your life that well-meaning, you were well-meaning, you were well-intentioned, but as you look back on it, it was a colossal waste of time. What can you learn from this passage about how to handle that the next time? How many times have you gotten distracted from the Great Commission over some petty issue that would turn out to be useless wrangling over words? Something you did or didn't like that doesn't really matter. Had somebody say to me on a Sunday night one time that, you know, well, I'd listen to you better if you wore a suit. Joel Osteen wears a suit. You hearing me? Those kind of things are not the issues. They slow us up. They hold us back. And we get involved in things the Bible doesn't even speak about. They come down to personal preferences. Nothing wrong with having personal preferences, church. It's just that when they distract us or cause us to judge other people or to manipulate other people to live by our personal preferences, oh, now we're on a different issue. There's a world that is lost and a world that is dying. There are people that God has chosen to save and He wants us to be involved in that. Nothing must stop us. Nothing must distract us. Christ is to have the preeminence. That means he is to be obeyed, obeyed, loved, served, sought after, and growing in our love and in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Does that describe you? I hope it does. And I hope it describes me as well. Knowing that our God is so faithful to us, he's going to get us there. He's going to get us there. Just pay attention to his discipline. Father, we come to you today as believers and we're still straying sheep to some degree. The Bible tells us all we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone every one to our own way. And I thank you, Lord, that when before we were saved, that's the way we lived all the time. But once we were saved and put into your fold, we still have a tendency to kind of wander off every once in a while. And we're asking you, good shepherd, good shepherd, please come after your straying sheep and bring us back into the fold. Bring us back where we need to be. Be our shepherd. Lead us through the valleys. Lead us to the green pastures. Protect us from the wolves. Protect us from the traps of the enemy. Lead us away from temptation. And then when we fall into the trap, deliver us from evil. And Lord, I'm thinking that what we're talking about today is an evil that a lot of us have fallen into. And we need deliverance from that. And only you can deliver us. And Father, we pray that as we think about these things, we understand that that person who is warped and self-condemned they're going to keep on going the way that they've been going no matter what. But we who are your children are going to turn away from that and we're going to seek the truth. We're going to seek to obey you. And that's what we pray that you would do in our lives today. For your glory and for your honor, let us be obedient sheep. 
And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing. Then we'll be dismissed. If anybody wants to trust the Lord this morning, if anybody has questions about church membership, there are some people you can see them heading back to the back of the auditorium. They'll be happy to talk to you. And uh, the rest of us, we're going to pray and we're going to sing and we're going to leave this place more surrendered to Jesus than we were when we came for the glory of God. Let's sing this together. Oh.